This is Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Bobby McCumber. West Papua was once a Dutch colony. But as the Netherlands prepared to return its independence, Indonesia invaded in 1961. In 1969, Indonesia allowed a UN-backed referendum on whether to remain part of the country. But only 1,000 hand-picked Papuans were allowed to vote. And with significant bloodshed, it's been under Indonesian control for more than 60 years. One man who fought against that control was anthropologist Arnold App. He went about preserving West Papuan identity through music, but it made him a target of the military and eventually it cost him his life. Arnold App remains a cultural icon and a symbol of resistance to this day. His youngest son, Raki App, joins me now. Welcome, Raki. Thank you, Bobby, for having me. Yes, so basically he tried to preserve our culture and traditions through the music that he loved to make as lead singer of the music and dance group Mambesak, which means uh, bird of paradise. And as anthropologist, his work is, you know, to understand the different more than 250 tribes to be more specific. So with all the different uh, kind of, you know, traditions, norms and values. So through his work, he understands the importance of certain language. So what he did as musician is basically to bring it out into the air. Um, and because he did that, uh, all these different tribes really um, recognize, of course, the language in those songs, and they really embrace the way uh, our father, uh, you know, uh, made the music and uh, underlines the value of these different languages, uh, traditions and cultures. And that's why he became very famous and loved by uh, many indigenous West Papuans. Why was he such a threat to the Indonesian military? Yeah, so the reason the Indonesian military and government possibly saw uh, our father as threat is because his music inspires uh, uh, the West Papuans and also united them in a certain way. Um, because the, the the songs that he made were about um, you know uh, the way indigenous West Papuans cook, the way we learn our children, the way we basically embrace who we are. So it kind of created an, a feeling of nationalism to be proud of who you are, and that's exactly what Indonesia didn't want. Because a united force can you know overthrow any colonial power. But also in his songs, my father described the desire of freedom. So that, that's absolutely something, you know, the uh, Indonesian government didn't like. Uh, but mostly because his music was really affecting uh, the people to come together, to embrace who they are. And I think that's the main reason that they put him many times in prison. And of course, we know uh, he was um, assassinated much, much longer than that. Mm. As you mentioned, he was imprisoned in 1983 in jail, he wrote a song, Mystery of Life. Yes. What's the story behind it? So, yes, the story of uh, Mystery of Life, which uh, became his last song in 1984, uh, Bobby, um, uh, was basically a, a feeling that he had in jail that, that he already felt that this might be my last chance to make a last song. 
and it became his last song uh, and, and and that also made him a legend and the song basically uh, went about um, you know a bird which represent the people of his Papua who is a prison some way in a cage um, which basically described the indigenous West Papuans living as prisoners in their own land um, but that life also is unpredictable uh, like his one um, and it says not only how his life, um, you know, uh, was basically um, going through, but also the many, you know, indigenous West Papuans who felt exactly the same feeling. And when Indonesia assassinated him, when this last record was going out, that made him a legend. And I think this song, even today, inspires a lot of West Papuans. Um, so it's really unfortunate that we lost our father, but it makes us also very proud the message that he sent out, not only to us, but to the entire world. How much danger was your family in? Um, so, yeah, my family was quite in danger. That's why um, we already were informed to flat West Papua, to the neighbouring Papua New Guinea. And that's what we did in the hope that we will be reunited with our dad when he would left the prison um, at the time. So my mother and three brothers at the time, I was still in my mom's belly, fled to the neighboring uh, uh, country, Papua New Guinea, uh, via a boat from Jaipura to Fanimo in the night, in the midst of the night, in a small boat. That's what I've heard from my mother. Um, and yeah, imagine a pregnant woman um, in a boat in the night with three other kids, um, uh, that was already quite dangerous. But realizing that when we stay in West Papua, there was an opportunity that we were killed, uh, all the family, really pushed us to go to Papua New Guinea. And that's where we were, arrived, um, uh, I think, a couple of days later in the refugee camp in Papua New Guinea. And that's where I was born, uh, um, in the refugee camp in Papua New Guinea, where we heard the message that um, yeah, our father was murdered um, uh, several months before uh, April. It became April 1984, and I was born in August 1984, so four months late. So, yeah, I can imagine that my mother was, uh, of course, very emotional, and my oldest brothers as well, because they had an age of, what is it, nine, ten years. So they, you know, quite uh, realized what happened. And, yeah, I was just born there as a baby, so I didn't realize anything until we arrived in the Netherlands and where I grew up and then heard the story of the way my father was, uh, took away of his life. And you were born in a refugee camp. What were the conditions like? Yeah, so the conditions in a refugee camp, you can imagine if you even see the pictures today, it's like uh, self-made homes from cells, from leaves, from wood, very, very, very uh, basic uh, uh, camps uh, uh, without proper facilities, as we see today in a, for example, UN facilitated uh, refugee camp, that, that would be a, a, a immense privilege if you compare to how we as refugees then and even today in, in, in refugee camps are living in very, very poor conditions. Uh, but at least we are alive. And a lot of our people we know are still running away from the Indonesian military. So even in such circumstances, we embrace the freedom that we at least have in such camps in Papua New Guinea. Now, after a year, your family fled to the Netherlands, the country that once colonised West Papua. Why there? 
Um, I think because the majority of uh, the West Papuans who fled West Papua and also Papua New Guinea went to the Netherlands because there's uh, a large community of uh, indigenous West Papuans who fled West Papua as well because of the political situation there. So it was quite uh, logic because we had a lot of network here. There were people who were also, when they received the matches that Arnold Alp was assassinated, he was already kind of famous in our community. So they said, we want the family app to come to the Netherlands. And also the church played an important role. Um, at the time, we were really welcomed by the, uh, the church in the Netherlands because of also the role in West Papua as missionaries and so on. So it was quite clear that the best way to flat uh, Papua New Guinea was the Netherlands because there's a community here. There's some churches who are willing to facilitate us. So that's what's happened. And I think um, it was quite, we were quite well received here in the Netherlands, uh, looking back at the time. How would you describe your childhood there in the Netherlands? Yeah, so um, a childhood in the Netherlands is quite normal if I reflect on that uh, period. Um, I grew up as any Dutch uh, citizen. Um, but of course, I, I had a color, and I was, I think, the only black-skinned kid in the class. So yeah, obviously, I was different, but I didn't felt it that way because uh, I had the luck that it was quite peaceful at the school where I was. But when I grew up and I get the age of 15, 16, that was really a moment that changed my life because that was the moment that my mother asked me, come to sit on the table, and I want to tell you something, namely... I want to tell you why we really fled to the Netherlands. And she showed me the pictures that we still have of my father in a coffin with where I could saw the torture lines on his body and also the bullet wounds. And that was the moment that basically, you know, turned my life totally. I was, of course, at that time, I was 16 years old, 15, 16. So I was angry. I was frustrated. I was sad. Um, but what can you do as a kid of 16 years old? But at that moment, something in me ignited. And I said, I want to pay back the Indonesian military, what they've done to my father, realizing that my father is not the only one, but now reports are saying more than 500,000 these was popping. So something sparks, but that was the journey that made me to find out who I really am, what who are indigenous was popping, because we didn't learn anything on the Dutch schools are how we are, former colonies in the Netherlands, they've wiped out our shared history. So I had to learn. I interviewed my uncles, my aunties, my grandpas to make sure that um, I understand the picture better than, than you know, um, the education systems here. What exactly did your mum tell you? So my mum basically told me that the way uh, that how my father was, you know, um, uh, was murdered by who? Um, so by the Indonesian military. And in, in you know, the most easiest way to, she tried to explain, you know, the colonialism, this how we went from a Dutch colonialism to Indonesia and that the West Papuans didn't want to be part of Indonesia. And that our father, you know, basically made songs that inspired the people and Indonesia didn't like it. A story like that, and that, uh, you know, but we assassinate my father. They killed him with a weapon, and these are the bullet wounds. That's what stick to me. So the crewness of what Indonesian military did, that, that's what stick to me. And I said, this is not fair, and this is not right. And understanding that he's not the only one, that's what really made me 
angry, but also motivated to to be, you know, in in some way a copy of my father to be an ambassador for for his people and voice. You said you felt angry and then motivated. When did your anger turn to motivation? I think um, when I got the age of 21, um, I already slowly started to join my oldest brother who was already active in the uh, campaign to, you know, to inform people in the Netherlands uh, about the right to self-determination. So very young, I already already joined my brother, my mother, and my uncles and aunties here in the Netherlands who were already active in the Free West Papua movement. But um, the motivation came uh, actually when we met uh, independence leader Benny Wenda, also around that time, I think 70 years old, um, uh, that we, we met him. and. Um, Having, you know, having, don't have a father um, really, you know, do, does something with your life. But when we met Benny Wenda, I saw a kind of father figure in him. And, um, and the moment that we saw him, he gave us a task in life. It's like, to you know, to step in the footstep of a father and tell the story about your people. That's basically what he told to us. And I say, be a voice for your people. And that's what we try to do in, in the best way we can by protesting. And, and I think that process, uh, how it looks very simple. I've seen uh, how powerful it is that you've got, you know, somebody who stands behind you, who believes in you and said, this is this is good, son. It will enrich your life. And, and that's basically what we did. And here we are today, you know, basically re-educating very powerful institutions in the Netherlands, politicians, media, because that single push uh, back then by um, Benny Wendt, for me, in this case. Yeah. You're listening to Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Bobby McCumber and I'm speaking with Raki App from the Free West Papua Campaign. He's also the son of legendary West Papuan musician and anthropologist Arnold App. Raki, what are the challenges of sharing the brutal truth of history with those who are unaware of it? Yeah, the challenges are quite uh, big because where do you start to tell this quite complex story when all the institutions, for example, in the Netherlands, but also globally, are silent about this cause. If you compare this, um, because it's 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 actual, the war in Ukraine, which uh, you know, I support the global support uh, by the mainstream media, but exactly opposite is going on for the case of West Papua. Sixty years of silence and denial about who we are, about where West Papua is, about what's going on. So where do you start? when the institutions are not on your side, when um, the media, the universities, the politicians are not on your side, where do you start? Basically from rock bottom. And that's quite challenging um, uh, because I, living in a former uh, colonial power, the country that colonized your country um, once, you have to explain every word about who the West Papuans are, where it is on the world map, and then the entire historical context. You know, this is quite a challenge to repeat it every single day to every Dutch individual who should know what's happening in the family color, but they don't. If we become angry, they would push our stories aside and they would say, this is the angry black man. So we had to be very patiently on how we are the victims. We had to play the victim once again to adapt to the the audience who doesn't know, and we can blame them because the institutions didn't take the responsibility. So these are the challenges 
for a, a storyteller, an activist like myself, uh, living in the country that once colonized you. Um, but we have shown that if you become resilient, you make a story, you, you understand that the audience can't be blamed because they're part of the system that, um, you know, basically keep this story a secret. So that's where we started, to find a strategy, to make a story that really touched the heart. And that's how we have transformed, step by step, uh, winning hearts and minds of students, of activists, politicians. And after 20 years of campaigning in the Netherlands, we have created a new momentum here. And, and, and that's the hopeful part, that storytelling is so important, even if the world turns a blind eye on a cost that matters to us all. Rocky, just how much has the silence around the West Papua situation been broken? Yes, so the silence about uh, the situation in West Papua have been broken several times because of the, I think, the activities of our campaign. Um, whether it is in the Netherlands or in the Pacific, um, it is because of social media like Facebook and, and Instagram that we had an opportunity to become journalists ourselves. We used to share the stories that have been kept for a secret for much too long. Um, you know, Australia is a, a doorstep away from us, Papua. How many Australians, but also fellow Melanesians, haven't heard about the story because there was no opportunity for them to hear, hear the story of West Papua. And so we use social media to break the silence. And that's how we succeed to um, break down Indonesia's uh, blockade of, you know, West Papua for the rest of the world. You know, media are still banned from West Papua. So how do you break the chain of silence? Um, it's just to create a platform where people can find the stories. And Facebook is one of them. Um, and it really changed everything. Um, uh, this modern way of communication allow indigenous Papuans to make a, a video or picture and send it out to the world. And that's how we utilize, you know, um, the stories that Indonesia tried, tried to keep a secret even today and to amplify those voices of, of you know, of injustice. Um, and that's how we basically inform the people in the Netherlands, but also in Melanesia, where we gain a lot of momentum nowadays even in the Pacific Island Forum, in the Melanesian Spearhead Group. Um, but it, it, it's not enough, right? If you compare this to the immense attention that the people in Ukraine luckily is getting, we don't got the same intention, not even from the government of Australia, who should talk about this as close neighbor, but they don't. How much conflict is there on the ground in West Papua today? Yeah, so the conflicts on the ground are... Many. So to start with, you know, the estimation uh, by NGOs of more than 500,000 uh, victims um, um, in West Papua, yeah, people who have been killed, but also women and children uh, being raped. We got, just to call um, one uh, resource, is Freeport McMoran, the world's largest gold mine, um, which is the, the single largest taxpayer in Indonesia. And we got many more resources, um, fossil fuel like BP, but yet we are living as poor citizens because, you know, it's the, the corporations and the Indonesian politicians and military elites who are benefiting from it. Uh, we got um, internal displaced people because of the ongoing military operations by uh, the Indonesian government. Uh, more than uh, 10,000, if not more, internal displaced peoples at this very moment. 
um, um, refugees in our own country, I should say. We got um, uh, um, immense um, destruction of our ecosystems, of our culture, because of this uh, marginalization by the government. We became a minority in our own country. The numbers are saying, like general, 2.1 million indigenous West Papuans versus 2.3 million migrants from other parts of Indonesia. So all these, these are just some of the examples how indigenous West Papuans are being marginalized on their own country. There's none, no country in this world, no people who would accept this. If these numbers are happening, for example, in the Netherlands, where there's a debate about uh, migrants from other parts of, 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 of Africa coming here, but imagine this happens in the Netherlands. Yet the world expects us to accept this. Uh, so this is just, this is you know a really really urgent situation in West Papua, who should deserve all the attention of the world, if you would ask me. How do you keep the campaign peaceful amid so much violence? That's a very good question. How do we keep the campaign peaceful? I think we have learned from Timor case or the South African case against the apartheid. Um, in our case. Peaceful um, is the solution because there's so much unawareness, silence about West Papua in the world. So when we, for example, will shoot Indonesian military, it will be used by Indonesian government, and that's exactly what you see today, to frame the West Papua freedom fighters as terrorist armed criminal groups. This is exactly the name that they use in, in, in their reporting. If you compare this once again, and I do this because you can see the differences, uh, the people in Ukraine fighting, they've been described as freedom fighters, as heroes. Well, when West Papuans are doing it, it's, which is quite the same, we are being framed as armed criminal groups, while our people are being, ex you know, being exposed to almost extinction. The people basically support Indonesian frames of, you know, the West Papuan separatists. You you see those kind of things. So we have choose to be peaceful because not a lot of people know about West Papua. So we will be victimized by the media or framed as armed criminal groups. Um, so the peaceful way we use, so at least we got the support from uh, the global community that we are a peaceful movement and that violence isn't, can be an option, but it, it is not our choice at this very moment. But I think if you look at the numbers, of indigenous West Papua slaughtered about how we are being, you know, um, how how the Indonesian government is racist against us. There's all reason for us to use violence. If you compare us to Ukraine, we have all the right to fight back like the people in Ukraine. But because of the frames being taken over by the mainstream media, there's a risk that we will be, you know, um, not accepted as peaceful activists. So that's why we choose to be peaceful in the best way we can. Rocky, how much do you dream of going home to West Papua? Is it your home? Yes, yes. I'm dreaming about it every single day, to be honest. Living here in, in the Netherlands in exile, knowing that West Papua is the world's largest tropical island, it's, you know, in many ways um, an amazing country. But realizing you can't go back because it would risk my own life as spokesperson. I'm, a, I'm blacklisted. I'm aware of that. So, of course, I think it will make any human being sad that you can't go back to even visit my father's grave. 
to even visit my family. You know, this is an inhuman situation. But yet I, I keep strong because I see how powerful it is to be an ambassador outside for the people who are voiceless in West Papua. Um, and that's what keeps me resilient and optimistic because the changes we, we are making every single day to be a voice for people, that Indonesian government sees that they can't get away with all these murders, with all this injustice, and that people, and the momentum is growing in the Netherlands, in the region, because people like me and many others who become a voice for the people of West Papua. Rocky, how do you feel when you see the Morning Star flag? Wow, yeah, the Morning Star flag is like the fire in, in me. That's why we are doing what we do, is because the Morning Star flag represents uh, West Papua, represents our culture, represents our this. Um, and I think every West Papua, whether they are based in Australia, in uh, Papua New Guinea, in West Papua, in the Netherlands, um, got a sense of um, you know, uh, home or freedom when they see the Morning Star flag, and I think that's the same thing that happens to me when I when I see the Morning Star flag. What would it mean to you to see raised over West Papua as a free country? Wow, that's the dream um, we are working on, um, and I'm confident and hopeful that one day the Morning Star would fly freely in West Papua because um, the right to self-determination belongs to all nations and to all people. And it's very clear that the Dutch prepared us towards independence. And it's a matter of time that when people hear about the story of West Papua, they hear about the injustice happening in West Papua, that they will support us, like they once have supported the people in South Africa or Timor, or even today in Ukraine, they will help us pop as well. So Indonesia can spend billions to campaign about, you know, lies, but these lies will never be truth. Truth is, truth is on our side. The law is on our side, the facts on our side. So we have nothing to fear about this just cause. So one day the morning star flag will fly in West Papua and I will go back and celebrate it with love and peace together with other people there. Finally, Raki, how important is your dad to the movement today? Yeah, my dad is still inspiring a lot of people in West Papua, uh, both ordinary citizens, religious leaders, as well as freedom fighters. And that's his, you know, his credit. And he, he made the biggest sacrifice a human being can make, uh, giving his life. By looking back at what, what his, his music has done, I think... That's the cross that we have to, that he, you know, he had to carry. Um, um, and it's sad, but it makes me proud as well, looking at how students and activists and um, museum employees are commemorating his death every single year at the museum he worked in, in Jayapura. Um, but also the, the band members, he's not alone. His, his entire band has been commemorated and remembered because of the immense power and legacy they made together. And it makes us proud. And it also keeps me remembered um, why he has been murdered and, and that we should never forget it. And the people doesn't forget it. So I will never forget it as well. And we will finish the job, continue the mission he, he carried um, until he, he was murdered. 
How do you think he would feel about your efforts and your brother's efforts with the campaign? I hope he would look down and be proud, and I think he is uh, looking at um, what his children are doing today. And uh, we kind of, you know, uh, followed his steps in a different way. He's a musician, but he's also a storyteller. Uh, I'm a, not a musician, but I'm a storyteller in my own way as activist. Um, and we are basically doing the same, being an ambassador for our people and underlining the importance of our culture because that's what makes us indigenous West Papuans. So I think he's he's proud of us. Raki, thank you so much for sharing your story. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you so much for this opportunity, Bobby and team. That was Raki App, one of the founders of the Free West Papua campaign, Dutch Arm, and son of the late musician and anthropologist Arnold App. You've been listening to Stories from the Pacific. I'm Bobby McCumber. And to catch more great stories about incredible people from the Pacific, just search for ABC Pacific. This story was produced on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people. 